from Boise, Idaho and Idaho Education News. Welcome to Extra Credit, your weekly podcast looking at education policy and education politics. I'm Kevin Richard. And I'm Clark Corbin. And I don't know about you, Clark, but I'm worried that I'm going to lapse into an affected British accent because that's what <laughs> happens every four years when you spend all of your spare time watching World Cup matches. You, you start to you know, take tea at three in the afternoon and you, you start to speak with, uh, with an unusual accent. We'll, we'll try to hold that in check. Because close to home, a lot of stuff went on this week. I mean, even for mid-June, we were busy with a lot of stuff breaking over the course of this week. So a lot to get to here on the podcast. Yeah, it was a fun week. It was a busy week. I didn't expect all the news. But uh, where do you want to start? You took a look at some new test scores um, that are out for the state of Idaho and had a chance to start digging into them. Which scores did you look at and what did you find out? Well, it was a big double dip of, uh, of a data drop from the State Department of Education this week, uh, Monday, uh, the SDE released uh, spring results on the ISAT and on the SAT mm-hmm. to test that sound all, sound similar, but are very different. They yeah. give you a very different snapshot into how students are doing. The ISAT, Idaho Standards Achievement Test, for those who want to avoid acronyms, that's the test that kids take from third grade on into high school. It tests kids on how they're doing relative to the common core standards in math and English language arts. Um, Pretty encouraging scores on the ISAT. By and large, uh, in nearly every grade level, in both math and English language arts, scores were at least steady, and in some cases they they improved. The proficiency rates went up by a percentage point, upwards of, I believe, four percentage points was the biggest increase. So you're starting to see some improvement, some encouraging numbers uh, on the ISAT. Uh, You are still seeing some of the same big picture gaps that we've been seeing for years on this thing. Uh, Students tend to do better on the English language arts version of the ISAT on that that portion of the test and tend to do better in English language arts as they move into junior high and high school. In math, it's the opposite. Numbers are lower and the performance tends to drop into high school. This is an ongoing issue that we've spent a lot of time looking at over the years. What happens with students and their math scores? So that's the ISAT, and that, I guess, would be the good news of the equation on Monday. The not-so-good news came on the SAT, and that's, again, I feel like we're laboring a point, but it's important to remember what this tests, where this fits into the continuum. This is SAT day, so about 20,000 high school juniors across the state took the SAT. The state pays more than a million dollars to make it available free. This is one of those programs that the state is doing to try to get more kids to continue their education after high school. So you're paying for this, taxpayers. There is a a graduation requirement to take some form of a college entrance exam. This satisfies that. Right, and that's kind of the opposite. And the majority of kids do take it. Right, because it's free and because it's required, this becomes, de facto, it becomes the, uh, the college entrance exam of choice in Idaho. So when we get the SAT scores, they give us a really broad view of how high school juniors are doing. And here the numbers are not so good. The numbers did drop. Um, You had overall a nine-point drop in the average score um, on a 1,600-point scale. So it may not be a huge drop, but it is a drop. And we're also seeing drops in terms of the percentage of, of students meeting those college-ready benchmarks. Can you explain what that, we talk about that every year, but uh, explain a little bit about what these college-ready benchmarks are and and kind of what they're supposed to 
there's sort of a, like a signifier or, a, or a, it's an a, indicator of it, future success. Right. It's a predictor. It's not an exact predictor. But what the College Board will tell you is that based on its research, and the College Board is the nonprofit that administers this test. So they're the ones who are, you know, have expertise yep. in, in the testing mechanism. They'll tell you that uh, if students hit these, these benchmarks in verbal skills or in math skills, they have a better chance of at least getting a C in entry level, you know, first year level classes in college. So it's a college ready benchmark in that sense. Uh, if you're hitting that mark on the SAT, odds are you will, you will do okay at the beginning of your college career as opposed to if you come in lower. So Idaho's scores on the benchmarks dropped a little bit. State leaders, uh, if you read the press release, were disappointed and also kind of perplexed by what they saw in the decrease. Uh, Carlin Laraway, uh, the state's assessment and accountability uh, person, uh, kind of posited the theory that she thought that maybe students this year, for some reason, they took the SAT less seriously, uh, suggesting that maybe it's more of an attitude issue than it is an aptitude issue. Either way, uh, and whatever happened, whether that's a factor, whether uh, whatever caused it, it comes at a time where, as, as you all know, the state's trying to get more kids to continue uh, education after high school. That's the whole point of the SAT day. That's the whole point of having college entrance exam as a graduation requirement. And, and this has just been a riddle that we have been unable to solve for a right, right. decade I mean, or more. The, the post-completion rate, the post-secondary completion rates have been a puzzle for, for, for years. And that's been a goal of the state for years. So a dip in SAT scores has to be concerning to folks who are trying to move the needle here in terms of uh, kids going on to college and succeeding once they get there. So definitely a mixed bag. We're going to take a much deeper look at the SAT scores because I know what a lot of people think when we talk about the statewide numbers. Okay, how did my school do? How did my school district do? We are starting to get those numbers on the SAT. They are out. There is a... You know, a search mechanism on the state's website. We've got some numbers ourselves. I've really not had much of a chance here Friday morning to dig into those numbers. I will. We will do more follow-up and, and try to get a sense of where the patterns are, where the where the outliers are. I mean, at a glance, you see what you would normally expect to see here. Uh, some of the higher SAT scores are in some of the higher performing uh, public schools and some of the higher performing charter schools. That's what you would expect, but we'll try to look for some of the more unexpected results. So look for more coverage on that in the week uh, in the week to come. And we'll have more next week. And as for the ISAT, we're not going to have district level or school level data for a few weeks. One thing I'm really interested in is kind of where we go from here with this group of students moving on with their education. You talked about the college readiness benchmarks that the college board puts out. To me, I wonder where we go from here because we talk about... I wonder if that relates to college remediation, and that's a big issue that we talk about when students arrive on campus and they're not prepared to have success in their general ed course requirements, and so they take these remediation classes. That's not new. We've looked at those numbers before, but that's frustrating for a young person to be taking these remediation classes and being paid a lot of money for credits that will not count towards your graduation requirements. Um, it's a frustrating situation. It shows that maybe some students aren't ready for higher education. Uh, I'm curious as to where we go from here, uh, what happens with this group of students as they enter higher education, what happens with remediation rates, what happens with next year's SAT scores. And I know oh. it's something that we'll be on top of, but 
cause for concern? I mean, it definitely cause for concern. And, and you, you nailed it there talking about the remediation, because that is a big problem, not just an Idaho problem, but it is a big problem in terms of students having to take these classes, having to pay for these classes. Sometimes they kind of burn through their financial aid, uh, their Pell Grants, uh, if they're eligible. And you're not getting anywhere and closer not, to graduation. And you're not getting any closer to graduation. So it, it, it tends to, you know, sometimes students have to go through that remediation process. They get frustrated, they run out of money, and they walk away. So it's a problem not just in Idaho. Uh, it, it's a national issue, but uh, definitely one uh, that y you have to think about when you see these SAT scores uh, do what they did. So a lot to unwrap in these numbers, and we'll take uh, take a closer look. You'll continue to yes, dive we'll, in. We'll, uh, we'll keep looking at the numbers, and we'll keep trying to look for patterns and, and and exceptions to the rule, because sometimes the most interesting stories are there. Yeah, and if there's bright spots, you know, when there are bright spots, you know, we'll seek those out, and we'll let you know what's going on in those schools and those districts. I want to move on to another uh, big story that we cover every summer, and that's the negotiations uh, that are going on right now. Uh, in some districts, they've been wrapped up already, but the negotiations between the school district uh, and its teachers or the bargaining unit, uh, you kind of looked at some of the trends right now, uh, and you found that uh, a number of the big districts have already settled, have already reached agreements for the upcoming school year. Right. Um what we found was uh, that this time around, the negotiation process around the state seems to be going fairly smoothly. Now, that's, you know, that varies from district to district because all of these processes and all of these negotiations are, are going on at the district level. But as far as a pattern that emerged when, you know, I started talking to the districts this week, just about every big district in the state has settled uh, well before that July 1st date, which is not a hard deadline. It's the beginning of the budget yeah. year for school districts. What happens, and we see it happen all, you know, repeatedly, is if a district hasn't reached a settlement by July 1st, they just continue talking and they just kind of roll the contracts out with the old, uh, with the old salary figures and work that out and work out the rest of the details into the summer, sometimes well past the summer we've seen. Yeah. But a lot of the big districts right now are, are settled. They're ready to go for July 1st. Nampa is an exception. Uh, talks will continue out there on Monday. Um, you know, and when I talk to not just the district folks, but when I talk to some of the state uh, stakeholders, uh, Karen Echeverria from the School Boards Association said, yeah, I, I've not heard as many uh, questions from, from my trustees about, about the process. So she's hearing that it's quieter. IEA pointed to a couple of districts where the process went more smoothly than in past years, Coeur d'Alene, West Ada. Uh, they still have a concern with some districts where, uh, you know, negotiators are trying to figure out how to use the career ladder, how to use the career ladder money, do you use the career ladder as the framework for a salary plan. So there are districts that are still uh, at the table. I mentioned Nampa, New Plymouth, and we'll talk more about New Plymouth yeah. as we go. Hold <laughs> on. Like every week we talk about New Plymouth. Uh, they're still in negotiations. Um, some rather heated negotiations going on in North Idaho, North Central Idaho, in Idaho County, in the Mountain View School District. Talks are on hold until July. Um, I, I linked to a story from the Idaho County Free Press. Just sounds like a, a wild and very contentious uh, negotiating session up there a couple of weeks ago. So, you know, results vary from district to district, as you would expect. Yeah, because 115. Because we had 115 districts going through the process. But in the big picture, a fairly smooth process, and, and that kind of juxtaposes against the national backdrop. I mean, we've had a lot of 
national coverage of statewide teacher walkouts from West Virginia to Oklahoma to Arizona. What you're seeing at the district level in Idaho is uh, by and large uh, a fairly smooth process this year. So we've got the rundown of what's happening in the districts. You can see uh, what happened in, in districts in your area. Yeah, it's, it's a great story. And this is, if, if you're new to the idea of district negotiations, this is really where the rubber meets the road in terms of teacher pay. We've talked about every legislative session how the legislature is invested in the career ladder salary law, and that's money for teachers. Uh, but it's a little bit of a complicated process because each and every year the local school districts meet with their teachers or with their bargaining unit to negotiate salaries anew every year. And so what happens is at the beginning of the year, January to March, the legislature sets the money that they will send out to school districts, and then school districts have that pot of money. They know how much they'll be receiving, and what they do over the summer is they negotiate what the individual, what the salary schedule will be right. for their teachers. So this is really where the rubber meets the road. Salaries and benefits, the money is pumped out at the state level, but it's set and agreed on every year at the local school district or local charter school level. Right. Because districts can decide whether or not to use the career ladder as their salary framework. Correct. I mean, or they can use that as a framework or they can take the money from the state and put it into a salary schedule of their own making. So that's part of uh, why you have variation from district to district. The other reason is some districts uh, choose to put more local dollars of, of their own accord into the salary schedule. So you know, a district like Boise that has uh, some mm -hmm. built-in levies uh, can put money into salaries. A lot of districts that have passed supplemental levies will, will kick some money from the from the levy into the salary uh, into the salary pot. So it all varies from district to district, and again, it varies because the negotiations are happening locally. So uh, we have a story that helps you get caught up with what's happening in your uh, your part of the state. Yeah, and if you want to find out what's happening in a couple diff different districts, your part of the state, like you said, get an example of some of the raises that may be coming teachers' way. All that information is in there, so it's a good uh, report, and I'd consider I'd urge you to consider that. Uh, Checking out, but let's move on. Let's talk about the week that State Superintendent of Public Instruction, Sherry Yubara, has. She was in the news a couple of times this week. Let's talk about Superintendent Yubara and Sunshine first. And I'm not just talking about her upcoming vacation, uh, but the Sunshine oh. campaign reports. <laughs> a little shade there. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. Anyways, uh, let's let's talk about the Sunshine reports. Um, these are campaign finance reports that were due uh, now that we're behind, we have the uh, spring primaries in the rearview mirror. Yeah. You were tracking them. What did you find? Well, these are important sunshine reports, especially within the calendar uh, of the election, because this is the report that every candidate has to file, win or lose, uh, has to file a report 30 days after the primary. And it gives you a sense of where they raised money in the run-up to the election and right in the aftermath of the election and where they spent money. The deadline was close of business a week ago Thursday. Uh, it took uh, State Superintendent Ibarra's campaign until Monday evening, four days later, to file a Sunshine Report. And it's available. I've written yeah. a couple of stories this week about this process. You can get uh, the link to the Sunshine Report out of our coverage. It's unclear to me how the campaign missed this deadline. These are fairly clear deadlines. Well, and I you know wrote about it. I, yeah, right. and I, I know to follow them, and I'm a lowly reporter who just reads these things. 
uh, this shouldn't sneak up on a campaign, you would think. The other three candidates in the superintendent's race filed by deadline. Right. uh, The two Democrats and the other Republicans. All the challengers knew to file by the 30th. The incumbent, who has been through this process before, uh, did not uh, file. So it's unclear to me how that happened. I've reached out to the campaign, have never gotten an explanation as to what happened here. Uh, It's also unclear to me what happens in terms of penalties, because this is a violation of state law. If you read the letter of the law, these reports are due by that close of business 30 days out. Uh, The state can levy fines of $50 a day for violations. Uh, Secretary of State um, can waive that fine and has pretty wide latitude in the law. Uh, Secretary of State can say, uh, in, in his view, this was not willful. And in his view, this did not uh, violate the spirit of transparency. So that gives a lot of leeway to Lawrence Denny, the Secretary of State. It's unclear what he's planning to do. I, I heard from Tim Hurst, his deputy on election issues, and says that's, uh, that's uh, Secretary of State Denny's call. Yeah. So we wait and see what happens there. Um, yeah, a couple of takeaways out of this is that really when I read the report, there wasn't a whole lot of news there. There no. wasn't a whole lot of money there. Um, it wasn't this voluminous report that someone stayed up for 10 right. days it, straight, it, it, dotting, it, it crunching numbers. A, right. It wasn't an all-nighter in terms of <laughs> compiling the numbers. I mean, she raised $2,600, Ibarra did, in that filing period. The only thing I found, the thing I found most interesting in the report was that uh, she reported paying back a $2,400 loan that she had made to her campaign. Yeah. But... Yeah, you're not reading this report. You're not seeing this you know, wave of donations from out of state or from, you know, any kind of donations that I would look at and say, why did she get money from them? Or where, who are these people? And yeah. why do they care about the superintendent's race? Nothing in the report that really raised a red flag to me and not a lot of money. So in the big picture, again, uh, Sherry Barr not raising a lot of money. We've We've seen this before. She was outraised in the 2014 elections and won both times. Uh, Cindy Wilson, the Democratic nominee, goes into the general election season with a fairly sizable advantage in terms of fundraising and cash on hand. We'll see what happens the next few months as, as the reports, <laughs> presumably, are filed in the, in the months to come. Um, but really, also the big picture in this, and we'll talk more uh, on Abara's week, this feels like an unforced error. And we saw a lot of that in the 2014 campaign where the Ibarra campaign just seemed to trip uh, on itself and make mistakes that were really uh, avoidable yeah. and unforced errors. Missing a deadline on a Sunshine Report is about as unforced an error as you get. I mean, that's those deadlines are out there. They're uh, easily found. And especially if you run a campaign before, you, you know that those deadlines are coming up. Well, I mean, my, my, look at some of the other candidates. I don't want to single anybody out and embarrass them, but look at some of the other candidates that were able, the first-time candidates that were able to turn these yeah. reports in correctly and accurately on deadline. I mean, my goodness. Yeah, um, it's, uh, it's it, we'll watch and see what happens in terms of uh, if there are any sanctions. We'll see what happens with future fundraising reports. But not a good look for uh, Superintendent Abara on this one. And um, her week continued. You were tracking State Board of Education this week. Well, I think both of these things just come down to transparency. And I know that she's frustrated with our coverage and her staff doesn't love this. But for me, it comes down to transparency 
And, you know, I strongly believe that the taxpayers, the residents of the state of Idaho deserve to know what their elected officials are up to. And so we've talked about this before, but this this next issue has to do with the superintendent's schedule. And we've talked about this before, and we've talked about this with our staff before ad nauseum. So what happened? The State Board of Education met this week in Idaho Falls Wednesday and Thursday. By virtue of her elected position, State Superintendent Sherry Ibarra is a member of the State Board. We get an official calendar uh, from her staff, usually on Fridays or Mondays, outlining the events of the week ahead. Obviously, this is subject to change in the event of an emergency or things happen. I get that. We got the official calendar Monday morning. It said Superintendent Ibarra will attend the State Board meetings on Wednesday and Thursday, and then she has a vacation beginning Friday, which is today, the 22nd, the day we're recording the podcast. Great. That's all well and good. She attended the State Board workshop on Wednesday, like she said, on Thursday. She wasn't at the State Board of Education meeting in Idaho Falls, and she wasn't on the phone. State law allows these public officials to literally have dial into a conference call and just be listening and vote when they're called on or make points when they're called on. She did not do that either. Which Abar did on Tuesday when the land board met. And we had that in our our coverage of the Sunshine Report because there was some back and forth between Ibarra and Wilson about her presence at the land board meeting. She was not there in person. Wilson was in the audience, uh, took a jab at Ibarra. Ibarra was participating in that meeting by phone, which is her prerogative and would have been her prerogative on state board on Thursday as well. But she didn't do it, so I called her staff. I said, what's going on? This was on her schedule. She's not there. I confirmed that she's not there and she's not even participating by phone. One of her communications folks didn't realize that the superintendent wasn't there and and made some calls to figure out what happened. The answer I got back was that the superintendent left, went home, and was preparing for her vacation, which started very early the next day. And so she was actually on vacation Thursday. And it's like, my goodness, why does this keep happening? Uh, If we would have gotten an accurate schedule at the beginning of the week that just said, hey, heads up, the superintendent's going on vacation. It's been in the works for a long time. There's going to be enough other state board members there. We've got it covered. She's going to miss it. That's one thing. But to say that she's going to be there and then not be there, it's a problem. She's supposed to be there. That's one of her jobs as an elected official to be there. Um, she said she was going to be there. It was on her schedule. She yeah, wasn't I think there. The schedule is the, the big hang-up maybe in, in all of this because there were other state board members who were not there on Thursday. Sure, there were two others right. that were not there, uh, Debbie Critchfield and, and Dave Hill, but they didn't send out communications saying that they would be there. And, and they're so also this, not running for re-election in November, which is why we find ourselves uh, focused in on what's happening uh, in in the Avara shop. But we, we've had these problems before where the schedule is less than transparent. Uh, but anyways, this keeps happening. So she's on vacation a day early. She will continue to be on vacation July 6th. As best I can tell, when you add in these two weeks of upcoming vacation, two and a half weeks since it started yesterday, we're looking at five weeks of vacation so far this year with Superintendent Ibarra once she gets this trip in through July 6th. We're barely halfway into the year and she's taken five weeks off well, and, and one thing that jumped out at me when we were talking about it before we turned on the microphone, uh, university presidents, under the contracts that university presidents have, uh, they get 24 days of vacation. Uh, that translates to about five weeks of vacation over the course of a year. So, you know, you put the five weeks 
in six months into that kind of a context. I mean, it's that's a that's a lot of that's a lot of time off. But yeah, we're just trying to report it and let voters decide whether they think that's a big deal or not. And you know, so this becomes an issue of us kind of you know seeking answers and seeking some transparency to allow voters to decide. You know, is this a big deal to them or not? I don't know, and that's really sure. uh, individual voters can arrive at their own conclusions. So we'll keep trying to get some answers. And just in the interest of full disclosure, the superintendent has not broken a law here or broken a policy. As an elected official, as the head uh, of the State Department of Education, she's not treated like a traditional state right. employee that may have two or three or four weeks Vacation. She doesn't get a benefits package like a right. university president that spells out how many vacations. And so it's not that she's gone over the limit or done something wrong here. There's no limit. She there's no limit. So she hasn't broken a law or even a rule or a policy. But we're just trying to catalog um, how often the superintendent attends meetings and, how, and her level of engagement with groups such as the legislature, the state board of education, the land board, uh, the big education stakeholders in the state. And so that's part of an ongoing effort. I know some people are frustrated with that effort, uh, but in my view, it's accountability. And uh, we're just giving people an idea about the work that their elected officials are putting in. It's not new. Uh, we've covered the governor uh, when he missed time during legislative sessions uh, for health issues and, sur and, and surgeries. Uh, we've covered uh, participation by the former state senator Brandon Durst, meetings he did and did not attend. So this is not new that we are scrutinizing attendance uh, and participation in meetings of public officials, and it's something and, and, that will know, continue. It comes up a lot. It comes up a lot in elections. I mean, you heard it uh, whispered about, and maybe not so much whispered about, in the first congressional district race. A lot of questions were raised about Luke Malik, uh, his attendance at the legislature, uh, his you know missing votes at the legislature. This becomes an issue. This becomes an optics issue. It becomes a, a job performance issue. So we're... we're you know, we're not uh, trying to tell voters what to think about it. We're just trying to give voters information. Give them, them information that isn't readily available. Is it a big deal to you or not? And we're just trying to get some answers. For sure. Let's move into the lightning round here. You mentioned uh, presidential compensation packages. I had a story earlier this week at long last, long gestating look at uh, the presidential search, the recent failed presidential search at Boise State University, and kind of taking a look at this overall sort of mysterious uh, issue of executive and, and presidential headhunters. Uh, I had uh, in, in, interesting findings from that story real quickly. Uh, the way the Boise State presidential search failed was really unique among universities that hire these executive uh, search firms, these headhunters. I, I spoke with the managing partner of AGB Search, which conducted the Boise State search as well as the successful searches at Idaho State and Lewis Clark State College. He said only 5 to 7% of the uh, hundreds of searches that they've conducted over the last eight years have failed in this way. Uh, it, it was an anomaly. It has happened before, but it was an anomaly. I also spoke with a professor from George Mason University who has studied presidential searches for 10 years and said there's surprisingly little information out there uh, about these presidential searches and about what universities are getting in return for these high-dollar searches. Uh, she looked at the Boise State contract and said, overall, it was actually one of the better contracts that she would looked at. They outlined due diligence. Uh, they had some separations in place to avoid conflicts of interest when it came to negotiating. But there was one flag, red flag 
that Dr. Wilde from George Mason University identified, and that was the confidentiality agreement that was included in the Boise State search with AGB search. And it's one of those things where you don't know what you don't know, but she speculated, after having studied presidential searches for 10 years, that these confidentiality agreements could be used to mask the fact or mask in an instance where a search firm recycled a pool of failed candidates uh, that it had used in the past. And we don't know what we don't know. Right. Um, she said overall it was uh, a, de a good contract that it spelled out uh, due diligence and some things that would be expected of the search committee. But at the end of the day, the result wasn't there. And when you talk about the candidate pool, um, we've heard several times from Dr. Linda Clark that the process was followed, but at the end of the day, they did not have the right candidate there to lead Boise State into the future. And that's why we find ourselves getting ready to start a new president search at Boise State, as well as a president search at University of Idaho. By the time all these five searches are over and done with, we're probably looking at spending more than half a million dollars yeah. of taxpayer money. And so that's why we took a little closer look at the presidential search. There's some more details in there than what we're going to cover on the podcast. But if you're interested in that, scroll back to the beginning of the week and look for the story about the uh, Boise State uh, president search. Right. No, it's, it's a good look at a process that is it's high stakes and it's high cost. So a uh, good job of looking at how this happened this time around and why it is kind of an, an unusual circumstance uh, with the BSU search. It feels like there's a lot of, a lot of week this week. I mean, I we know. mentioned New Plymouth a few minutes ago. You have the latest on the, uh, the hiring process in New Plymouth. They have a superintendent. New Plymouth has hired uh, Superintendent uh, David Satotu, who has worked uh, in Bancroft and Grace before as both a principal and a superintendent. Uh, he will be starting uh, in July as new superintendent of New Plymouth. New Plymouth, you may remember, has been in turmoil most of 2018. There was a very public disagreement between former high school principal Cleet Edmondson and outgoing superintendent Kevin Barker. Um, a huge back and forth, both of them. Uh, Cleet Edmondson has resigned. Kevin Barker uh, is resigning and has accepted a buyout. Uh, a lot of turmoil in that district. It was very unusual. A private community member, a private businessman donated $400,000 uh, to help uh, incentivize Superintendent Barker to step down. It appears to have worked. I've never seen that before no, it's very in all my years of journalism. Uh, but if you want to find out a little bit more about the superintendent, we were able to confirm with the board chair that this was hired. It caught us a little bit off guard. We're trying to find some records associated with this, but uh, David Satotu has been hired as the new superintendent. If you want to find out a little bit more about him or a little bit more about the bizarre uh, year and the public dispute in New Plymouth, Head over to IdahoEdNews.org, get caught up on that story. Uh, next week, uh, it's not going to get any slower. Uh, next week, uh, give us a taste of a couple things that we're going to be looking at next week before yeah. we get into the 4th of yeah. July holiday. Yeah, we'll do it quickly because I feel like uh, to torture the soccer metaphor, we're in stoppage time yeah. right now. We yeah. can't blame injuries. We can't blame no. video review or goal line technology. It's just a lot we had to talk about this week. But uh, We'll have more about the test scores, the SAT scores. I'm going to try to dig into those numbers and give you a better sense of what happened across the state. And we will fan out, uh, you and I and, and Devin Bodkin, our Eastern Idaho reporter, political conventions, uh, state yeah. party conventions next weekend, Democrats. Party in, time. Yeah, right. Uh, 
These are not that much fun. Uh, so you got uh, Democrats in Caldwell. You and I are going to divide and conquer on that. Cindy Wilson will be speaking on Friday. We expect to see Paulette Jordan there at some point over the weekend. We'll have that. Uh, Devin will be in Pocatello yeah. for the Republican convention. Uh, we don't know yet uh, what the schedule looks like in terms of Brad Little speaking, in terms of Sherry Ibarra speaking, or if she's going to be there if she's on vacation. Uh, Paula Jordan, same thing with the Democrats? We're, we're trying to pin down who's going to be there and when, and we'll have coverage of that. Lots of intrigue. Who will be there? Who yeah. will stay home? Well, these are conventions. You'd expect everybody to be there, but uh, we will be there trying to uh, yeah. give you a sense of what's being talked about and what it all means heading into November. So that's a quick glimpse of what we've got coming up next week. Uh, things just continue to roll here. All right. Busy week. Sorry for the long podcast. We had a lot to get to. But as always, thank you so much for joining us. We have a lot of fun kind of exploring this complicated intersection of policy and politics. And we love breaking down uh, the issues facing public schools and higher education. So thank you, as always, so much for listening uh, each and every week to Extra Credit. We will be back next week. One last edition of Extra Credit, and then we're going to take a little time off ourselves over July 4th, but we'll be back next Friday with a brand new edition of Extra Credit. In the meantime, thank you so much for listening. I'm Clark. I'm Kevin. Have a good week.